Welcome back to Adult Sunday School after the winter break. Um, welcome visitors who may be joining us for the first time. We're carrying on with our series uh, through the Heidelberg Catechism. <coughs> and so you'll want to grab your Psalter hymnal out of the pew rack. And you also might probably want to grab your Bible as well. We are on Lord's Day 12, if I recall. Uh, and so you'll know, especially if you're visiting with us, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the, the documents, one of the statements of the faith, one of three in particular that we confess at this church as being faithful and accurate summaries of the Word of God. And we're going through it. The uniqueness of the Heidelberg is that it's in a question and answer format. Uh, and we use it as a tool, really. It's an aid, uh, a tool to help us better understand the Bible because it's a summary of the Bible. And so we want to have our Psalter hymnals open so we can follow along, but we also want to have uh, the Bible with us too because the Catechism is, is an invitation to go back to Scripture. Uh, we don't study the Catechism as an end in and of itself. We're trying to be better Bible readers and more knowledgeable Christians. So it's best always to have the Bible in one hand and the Catechism uh, in the other. So in this series, we're going through... Uh, the whole catechism, but in particular at this point in the class, we're in, in, in a section on the Apostles' Creed. So it's a, a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. What do you mean when we as a church, uh, every Lord's Day during morning worship, uh, recite out loud and confess our faith, the Apostles' Creed? And, and you'll recall from some of the past Sunday school uh, lectures we've had that each each phrase in the Apostles' Creed, because the Apostles' Creed is a summary, um, each phrase is uh, like the tip of an iceberg, really. And, and below the surface of it is vast quantities of, of biblical information. Uh, and that's certainly the case with uh, where we are in the Apostles' Creed now. We're talking about who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? That's where we are in the Apostles' uh, Creed. I think before the Christmas break, we looked at Jesus' his first name, so to speak. Uh, Jesus, what does that mean? The Savior, uh, the one who saves us from our sins. And now this week we turn to, uh, to Christ, to the Anointed One. Um, I mean, if you look on the internet, who is Jesus? Uh, you'll find a lot of, a lot of links. Uh, probably not all of them very helpful, or very useful, or very true. Um, fortunately, there is a lot of good biblical truth on the internet, but in general, that is actually a question that everyone's asking. You just have to search on the internet and see how many times people search for who is Jesus to see all the different kinds of, of answers. Well, as Christians, as confessors of the faith, uh, we start with very simple sorts of things, uh, starting with Jesus' name. Jesus Christ, these names are, are loaded, freighted with biblical meaning. Uh, and so uh, Jesus, Yahshua, from the Old Testament Hebrew, Jesus is just the Greek for, uh, for Yahshua, meaning Savior, uh, a Hebrew word. And, and Christ is, is the Greek word for, um, for the Hebrew, Mashach, 
meaning anointed one. And that's where the catechism begins uh, to explain for us who is Jesus. So our, our habit here is for me to read the question and then for you to follow along uh, in the answer. Question 31 is on page 19, if you haven't found it yet. 19 in the back of the Psalter hymnal. Uh, who is, uh, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Very good. Well, Christ, then, what does it add to what we already know, uh, Jesus? What is, what's unique about Christ? What does it add uh, in our understanding of the identity uh, of, of our Savior? Uh, Christ, because it means to anoint or the anointed one, connects Jesus very clearly to the three main offices three main themes from the Old Testament. Uh, Sometimes when you're, there's a lot on the internet about Jesus, we'll set all of that aside and just think about what did the Bible say about Jesus? There's a lot of material about about who Jesus is in the Bible. So sometimes it's helpful to have basic introductory categories to to organize all the different biblical data uh, about Jesus. Um, One of the main organizational categories or tools that we use are called the three offices uh, of Jesus. There are others, too. Uh, I, I can tell you what some of them are because it's uh, maybe a helpful introduction to where we're going with the Apostles' Creed over the next few weeks. Um, who is Jesus Christ? First, we start with the names. Um, and there are several names that we find. Jesus being one, Christ that we'll talk about today, uh, the Son of God, uh, an, important, uh, an important title, uh, the Word, the Eternal Logos, um, the Lion, the Lamb, these are all names for Jesus that are important. And as Christians, that's the best place to start. If somebody asks you, who is Jesus? Start by explaining his name. Well, Jesus means Savior. Christ means the Anointed One. After the names, uh, to, get, to say a little bit more about the Anointed One, um, we talk about the person and the person of Christ. So Jesus is one person with, with two natures. Um, we talk about the work of Christ. And usually we explain the work of Christ in terms of what I referred to a moment ago as the three offices of the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. These are the three offices. And what's interesting, and, and what we'll start to see in a, in a moment when we, when we open up our Bibles, is that each of these office bearers in the Old Testament uh, are anointed ones. Uh, and, and so we, we talk about the names, the person, the work, in terms of the three offices, 
all of which uh, are, all the office bearers are anointed ones. And then we talk about, uh, this is the easy one to forget, the states of Christ. Uh, you probably all knew the, the three offices of Christ. How many of you know, what the, do we have any volunteers? What are the, the states of Christ? That's the three offices. The two, there are usually two states of Christ that we talk about. Oh, that's the two natures. Yeah, the, right, the two states of Christ, we talk about the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Um, so I'm just going to abbreviate here, humiliation and exaltation. And, uh, I mean, roughly, we're on Catechism question 31 and 32, but we particularly start to talk about the humiliation of Christ on Lord's Day 15, question 37, uh, what do you understand by the word suffered? Uh, and, and it carries on to 49 or 50. And then we look at Jesus' exaltation, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father uh, in terms of the humiliation, or so the exaltation of Christ. So uh, these right here, names, work, states, persons, um, these are just ways, these are broad, broad headings, categories, uh, under which we try to sort out and, and categorize uh, lots of the biblical data. Uh, so today we're talking about the work of Christ, in particular his work fulfilling the three offices of the Old Testament. Um, this is a little simplistic, but to say that Jesus' Jesus's first name is Jesus is true. It's a personal name. Um, it also is a name for, loaded with biblical content as, as the Savior, but it's a name given to him by his by his parents. Christ is, is a name that directly links Jesus back to the whole of the Old Testament through, through these, three, uh, these three offices. So let's uh, open up our Bibles and we'll start to um, think a little bit about the three offices. And in particular, I'd like to just, I suppose, um, point out the obvious from our catechism answer, which is that um, these offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king, are all uh, anointed offices. Uh, we could start anywhere, really. We could start with the priesthood and open up to uh, uh, Exodus 29. Just briefly to touch down here to see... Uh, to see the founding of the Aaronic priesthood, the setting apart, consecrating of Aaron and his sons to be a hereditary priesthood for, for Israel. But I could just say one more sort of general introductory thing. What did the people of God need? What did the people of God need in the Old Testament and what do they need, what do we need today? Uh, we need someone to declare the will of God to us. We need, we need a prophet. We need somebody to rule and reign over us. We need a king. And we need somebody to reconcile us to the Father, to intercede for us with the Father. Uh, we need a priest. So these three offices have to do with the needs of the people uh, of Israel. So uh, Exodus chapter 29, 
Uh, I won't read up the whole thing. We'll, we'll use too much time. Um, let's look at uh, verse 9 briefly, and then we'll skip towards the, towards the end of the chapter. Um, and the priesthood uh, shall be theirs uh, by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Recall that word, ordain. Keep that in your mind. Now let's uh, move later in the chapter. Uh, How about verse 28? I'll read verses 28 and 29 and, and then skip to the end of the chapter. Verse 28, it shall be, namely the priesthood, shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contributions to the Lord. So they're making sacrifices uh, in order to prepare for this. Then verse 29, The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. So they're being anointed with oil and ordained for a particular task and calling. And later on at the end of the chapter, verse 42 Uh, This priesthood will offer regular burnt offerings throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve as my priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord. I am the Lord their God. Well, we'll see this even more clearly if we, if we turn uh, to the kingship, which we will in just a moment. But what are the, r- the rough elements here? We have uh, ordaining to an office. We have an anointing with oil. And here at the end of the chapter, in particular, we have the promised presence of the Lord. We have the promised presence of the Lord at the meeting place, at the tent of dwelling, where God will be their God. That's the basic foundation of ordination and and anointing to an office. And here we have it with the priesthood. Uh, To look at the kingship, we could skip to 1 Samuel. Uh, We can look at Saul um, briefly. Maybe we can look at... at, uh, David as well. Uh, how about Samuel? First Samuel uh, chapter 9, 9 and 10, really. Uh, you'll recall, I hope from, from our series through, uh, through, through First Samuel, that um, initially it was the people who wanted a king. And God was quite resistant to this, warned them about the dangers of having a king. Uh, but the people kept pestering and, and belaboring the point. And, and so finally God relented and granted them a king, Saul. Uh, his priest, or sorry, his prophet Samuel is the one who organizes Saul's ordination and his anointing. So in the middle of, of chapter 9, um, verse 15 comes to mind. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel... Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be my prince over my people Israel. 
He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So there's the promise. Skip over to, uh, over to uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 10, the very beginning of chapter 10. And you'll see the actual anointing. First it was promised and foretold to Samuel. And now here it actually happens at the beginning of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me, he goes on and gives him some signs. There'll be donkeys and various people who will come by and give him things. Uh, if you skip ahead, though, to verse 6 of chapter 10, uh, then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me uh, to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you, uh, I'm coming to you to, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Well, what do we find here again? R- right at the very beginning of chapter 10, at verse 1, uh, we see him being ordained and anointed to a task. He has a calling placed on his life to be the king, to be the prince over his people, and to save them. And then in verse 6, gifts are given. The promise of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. For the priesthood, God promises to be present there uh, in the temple and also to anoint and consecrate the priests. Here with the kingship is a special promise, a special gift of the Spirit uh, to rush upon the king so that he will prophesy and and do do remarkable things, etc. The same thing happens if you skip to chapter 16 when we look at Uh, David, who is kind of the ultimate example, really, of the kingship uh, in the Old Testament. Um, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 16. Well, we could really read the whole chapter. Uh, I won't. This is one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament. Uh, There's something about the calling and anointing of David that's just a wonderful story. Um, I think in part, for me at least, it's because we're let in on, on the secret. No one else knows that David is going to be anointed to be the king. Um, Saul doesn't know. Uh, Samuel knows, and David's family knows. But that, that's about it, right? So Samuel goes, uh, God tells him, I'll, I, will, I want you to go meet with this family, and, and one of the sons will be the king. And you, you remember the story. Samuel goes, all the various sons are paraded before the prophet, and, and none of them is quite right, though they're all handsome and strong and, and so forth. But it's, it's when David comes, who's the sheep, who's the last son, who's almost totally forgotten, who's almost totally uh, neglected because, uh, because he's the youngest. Uh, and then in verse 7, we learn the Lord's reasoning that the appearance doesn't matter so much. In verse 7 of chapter 16, the Lord says to Samuel, uh, don't look upon his appearance or on the height of his stature uh, because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Talking about uh, David's older brother. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then later on uh, in verse 13 and 14, we find uh, David is, is paraded, Samuel waits, uh, David's called in from the fields, and then the anointing happens at the end of verse 12. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he, this is the king. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day, from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And then one more verse, which is, which is uh, a powerful verse. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Well, what we find in this chapter, at the very beginning, we, we won't take uh, the time to read it, but you find again an, a, an anointing, a calling to an office to be the king. And then here at the time of anointing, you find the spirit coming upon David uh, and, a, and a horn. The spirit rushes upon David from that day forward. And then the spirit departs from the previous anointed one, from, from Saul. So there you have the basics of, of what it is to be an office bearer in the Old Testament. It's to be anointed with oil. It's to have a calling to a particular task. We, I won't take the time, but the same is true uh, of, of the prophets. There aren't as many um, prophets that we could turn to uh, who are anointed. There are a few here and there, but it's the same thing. Uh, there's an anointing with oil. There's a promised presence of the Spirit, a giving of gifts, in other words, to carry out the particular task uh, at hand. That's what you have. Well, why is Jesus called the anointed one? Because he fulfills all three of these offices in remarkable ways. He is uh, the capstone. He is what all three of these offices pointed towards, the ultimate expression of a prophet, priest, and king uh, in in the New Testament. Well, here's uh, a tough question to ask you. When was Jesus anointed? He has this name, Christ, which means the anointed one. Because he fills all three of these offices. So, at his baptism, well, excellent job, young lady. <laughs> uh, at his baptism, let's turn and look to, to Jesus' baptism in, John, in Luke chapter 3. There isn't a moment, in other words, when... Uh, a previous prophet takes the horn of oil and pours oil on Jesus' head and anoints him. There is what we find here at the beginning of, uh, of, of Luke, um, if I can find it, where John the Baptist has been baptizing and then Jesus is baptized. Um, now, I think technically, let's, let's be theological um, from the moment of Jesus' conception, he was, in a very real sense, anointed and called to the tasks of being prophet, priest, and king. From the moment of his conception, that's certainly true. Uh, from the moment the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, begins to grow uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's called to this task to be prophet, priest, and king. But then, in, in time, in real history, there is this very powerful um, episode early on in his life, this baptism. Luke chapter 3, uh, where is it here? Chapter, ver- verses 
15, a little bit later maybe. Um, well, let me just start reading verse 15 and, and, and we'll find it. I think it's probably a little bit later on. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for, for uh, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all: he locked up John in prison. Here's, I think, the 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 powerful moment. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Well, this is a more powerful anointing, especially for the sake of all the onlookers, where Jesus is particularly called um, to, these, to these offices. Of the fact that he was anointed and knew he was anointed, there can be no doubt, because just one chapter later in Luke 4, uh, verses 14 and on, Jesus goes into the temple. Well, let's read it. Uh, chapter 4, verse 14 uh, of Luke, just one, one chapter later. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went, on, went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was opened to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recover and the recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And it goes on. So there's no doubt that Jesus knew he was the anointed one and, and read Isaiah 61 to make that very powerfully clear uh, to all of those listening. Well, what do we have in Jesus' anointing? We have uh, exactly what you find in the anointings of the Old Testament that we looked at. Uh, calling to an office. He certainly knew that he was being sent by the Father. Um, we won't turn to this passage, but in Hebrew 1, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, we learn God has spoken by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. There's clearly, clearly an appointment that goes on. John chapter 7, verse 28. Uh, Jesus says, I am not come of myself, but the Father has sent me. So there's an ordaining to an office. Jesus knows he's appointed and he's being sent to carry out a task from, from the Father. There's also the giving of gifts. 
namely the Holy Spirit, very powerfully. The Holy Spirit descends on him in visible form like a dove. So much like the office bearers in the Old Testament, Jesus receives an extra measure uh, of the Spirit. We could turn to our sermon today. After Jesus' departure, he gives that same Spirit to us, uh, which is why we are also partakers of the Spirit. But I'm skipping ahead already to, um, to another catechism question, the, the very next one. Well, here's one interesting question. Uh, why not oil? Why, why wasn't Jesus anointed with oil? Why is his anointing different? It's a tough question. More than a, more than a few, many theologians have been puzzled by this. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you didn't catch that, it's because all of the Old Testament anointings were, um, were, were something like uh, the sacraments. It was sacramental anointing, where a sign, the oil, represents the thing signified, the Holy Spirit coming. Well, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of these signs, and the Holy Spirit is the reality. And so in Jesus' anointing, you don't need oil because the Spirit descends directly. And, and Jesus has the fullest measure of the Holy Spirit, um, much like the first Adam may have had. Uh, that's, that's a great answer. That's why there's no oil. It's because the Holy Spirit comes directly to Jesus in, in, a, in a pretty unique way. Um, we could go down rabbit trails and talk about the humanity of Jesus. What, what do these gifts mean for Jesus? These gifts are given particularly to Jesus' human nature so that he has uh, an extra endowment by the spirit of, of energy, of calling and consecration, um, of, of even knowledge at times to carry out his task. Uh, Jesus, according to his divine nature, of course, possesses the fullness of divinity. Uh, but the conferring of the gifts that come with the Holy Spirit uh, are particularly important for Jesus' humanity. I can tell by some of the expressions, I may have just opened up more questions than I've answered. Um, you have to go to seminary and take you know, classes in Christology uh, to get to the bottom of all that. Um, no, I, if you have questions about that, I could, I could uh, now try to answer them, having, having opened up a can of worms. But maybe we should save that uh, for the end. Well, there we have Jesus. That's why he's called the anointed one uh, for these biblical reasons and more. L- let's turn to the catechism uh, itself and, uh, and say a little bit more um, about the catechism answer. Let's exegete the, the catechism, so to speak. Uh, the first part of the answer, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Uh, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our uh, dot, dot, dot. What's the first thing we should note then about this answer? That the anointing is Trinitarian. It involves uh, the Father who anoints and the Son who is the anointed one and the Spirit who, who is himself, uh, as, as the old theologians used to refer, is the unction. He himself is the anointing. The Father does the anointing, the Son is anointed, and the Spirit is the unction who himself descends and has a special presence um, with, with the Son. So it's a very Trinitarian um, answer. 
which is in, in keeping with, with past catechism questions. The whole of the Godhead is involved in our salvation, um, even though they have particular uh, works that they carry out. Well, what's he anointed and ordained to? To these three, these three offices, to be our prophet and teacher, who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. What do prophets do in the Old Testament? Uh, they teach, they instruct, they reveal uh, things from the Lord. And in that respect, we have to say that the, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of the prophet. He's the one who, as the Son of God, brings the good news of salvation from the very heart of the Father and becomes incarnate. Um, he, he is the ultimate prophet uh, in, in that sense. He reveals and fulfills God's plan of salvation um, for us. He teaches uh, directly to the disciples and then calls disciples after him. That's another important thing that prophets do in the Old Testament. Uh, they call other prophets. Um, and the Lord Jesus calls disciples uh, both unique at special times in the, in, the, in the early church to lay the foundation uh, for the church. And then he calls uh, each one of us uh, to be little prophets. I'm skipping ahead to the next, to the next question already. Um, so Jesus is certainly the prophet who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel uh, and will of God. Not just the secret counsel, anything you'd like to know, Reverend Brown's good at talking about this. We don't learn all the mysteries that we, that we maybe would like to know. It's particularly God's secret counsel for our deliverance, for our salvation. What do we need to know in order to be reconciled uh, with a holy father? The other office, uh, he is also our, uh, our only high priest who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. At least one interesting thing to note about, about this section on Jesus' priesthood uh, is that it includes past and present. In the past, he has set us free by a, a one-time sacrifice, which is what explodes the relationship to the Old Testament priesthood. Because the Old Testament priests have to continually offer sacrifices. Even the high priest goes in only once a year, so it's less frequent, um, which is, I think, in a way, pointing to Jesus. The, the, nor the regular priests offer sacrifices continually. In the Old Testament, the highest expression of the priesthood is the high priest, and he offers sacrifices less frequently, just once a year. But he has to offer one for his own sake, as well as on behalf of the people. Jesus offers sacrifices even less frequently than the high priest. Once for all, that's if you get a chance this afternoon on your Lord's Day to read Hebrews chapter 9, um, really Hebrews 6 through 9, uh, is, is a wonderful meditation on the once for all nature of Jesus' sacrifice and what makes him totally unlike the high priests in the Old Testament or any of the other priests. Um, so once for all, it's in the past, and it has set us free um, by the sacrifice of his body. But it's not just a past work. It's also present, ongoing. He continually pleads uh, our cause with the Father. He, he is our intercessor, um, always 
uh, pleading our cause with the sake of the Father, which is a great encouragement uh, to us. And then we have the, the last office, and he is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit. That's what kings do. They govern, they guard. Um, he is one who particularly is a, is a benevolent king, not like all of the kings in the Old Testament, um, but he is a king who does most of his reigning, it would seem, for our benefit, uh, for our sake. And look at the kinds of things that he does. Uh, he governs by his word and spirit, but he also guards and keeps us in the freedom that he has won for us, uh, which certainly does make him a benevolent king. One, one last interesting thing to point out uh, is that Jesus, in a very special way, brings together all three of these offices in a way that hadn't been seen in the Old Testament. There's a little, little hint of the bringing together of offices uh, with Melchizedek. Uh, and Jesus has a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, we learn from the book of Hebrews, which means he is uniquely a priest and a king in the same person in ways that, that go beyond anything that had, had come before. Uh, he, he is our priest and our king. And there are very powerful biblical metaphors uh, or analogies or pictures of what this looks like. Um, the, the, the best one is really, well, we should look it up and read it. be a, a good place to end. Be at, the, at the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 5. I'm tempted to read almost the whole chapter once we find it. Um, because we have these two pictures. Jesus is both a lion and a lamb in a powerful way. In other words, he is both the lamb of sacrifice, the ultimate expression of the priesthood, and he's also the king, the lion, the lion triumphant. Um, our, our kids got some Lego sets for Christmas, so I am still trying to put together Lego castles and pirate things. And, but the th the, my favorite part about the Lego castles are the little, the little shields with the little crests. I like the little lions on there. I mean, these are, these are symbols. These are like medieval uh, symbols of kingship. Uh, a lion and a lamb. That's, that's what uh, Jesus is. I'm still looking for Revelation chapter 5. I know it's at the end of the Bible, so uh, I'll find it here briefly. But this is a powerful section of Scripture where, where we see these things come together uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 5, then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb 
standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders uh, fell down before the lamb. Each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Well, it's a powerful, a powerful thing. Uh, the Lord Jesus is the one who is the anointed one, who brings together all of these offices that foretell his coming. And he comes and he is uh, our lion and our lamb. Thanks be to God for that. We have like a minute, so we won't get to the next question. And uh, I feel like we should just pray and sing a song or something. But, uh, uh, but if you want, we could take a, a question or two um, before, before ending. None of the really difficult questions about Christology. We would need at least 10 minutes for that. So, um, uh, so Jesus was circumcised, and then in this one chapter we read where he was baptized, and the Holy Spirit said, then in that uh, baptism that the, the new covenant was instituted where we now baptize not quite. John's baptism is different than Jesus' baptism. Um, so we really look to the Great Commission, to, to Matthew 28, um, for, for, for the founding of, of the baptismal practice that we enjoy and celebrate. Um, but that's a good question. I mean, it's worth saying more. In fact, I can say more about that next week because there are some connections even to, to the next catechism question and answer. Yeah, I think we're out of time. Um, let's uh, let's pray. We won't sing, but let's uh, let's definitely pray and give thanks to the Lord uh, for His goodness to us. Please bow with me. Uh, gracious Father, as we um, read, uh, I believe in our call to worship this morning, we we lift up our heads and we lift up our hearts uh, that the King of Glory may come in. Uh, the Lion, the Lord strong and mighty, uh, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory indeed, uh, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's also uh, our Lamb, our perfect sacrifice uh, for the full remission of all our sins. Uh, we give thanks to you and we worship you this morning, uh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Be with us this week, we pray. Uh, make 
make our anointing that we'll learn about next week, make it effectual, help us as little prophets, priests, and kings to confess the Lord Jesus' name with boldness and to live sacrificial lives of thankfulness and humility, uh, genuinely looking to, to serve our neighbor and love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, be with us all as we look forward to uh, the return of the King, uh, to the full coming of the kingdom, that one day we may, we may reign with you. So make haste to help us, uh, O oh Lord, make speed to save us, uh, for we ask this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.